Let's pray, please. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for the words of eternal life that you have given to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. May we receive their truths with faith and love, lay them up in our hearts, and practice them in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Verses 26 to 43. Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 43 is our scripture reading and sermon text for this morning. Luke 23, verses 26 through 43. So Luke 23, beginning at verse 26. When they led him away... They seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others also, who were criminals, were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. May God bless the reading of his holy word. We ended last week on the point made in the the very last phrase of verse 25. You see it there? But he, Pilate, delivered Jesus to their will. And their will was as wicked as a will, as a desire could be. Their will was to murder the Son of God in the worst way possible. Their desire, their will, was to abuse, humiliate, and destroy him. God's will was the reconciliation of his church to himself. What they intended for evil, God intended for good. Now, I was thinking about that a lot as I was preparing my sermon for you. It is a very serious mistake to think that God is just really good at cleaning up messes, that he's very good at finding creative ways to bring good out of evil and bad. 
What happened to Jesus here in every detail was planned by God, decreed by God, and predestined to occur exactly as it did. Every thorn in his brow, every scourge on his back, every strike to his head. The God who is the creator of all things and the creator of all of us, he is the sovereign king of the universe. There's not a single rogue molecule or atom in the entire created cosmos whose every movement and moment-by-moment existence is not sustained and planned by the triune God. God leaves nothing to chance. Nothing ultimately is random. God created all things of nothing. We know from the word of God. He created all things out of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. And the decrees of God, the plan of God is his eternal purpose. According to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory, he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And God executes his plan, his decrees in the works of creation and providence. God is never standing back, hoping things will go a certain way. He has an unchangeable, immutable pre-creation decree for all that takes place in his creation from beginning to end. In Isaiah 46, verse 10, he says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my decree shall stand unchangeable and I will do all my pleasure. What the religious leaders of Israel did was a terrible evil. What they did to Jesus was the worst atrocity ever committed by human hands in history. Before that generation passed away, the armies of Rome came in and fought against Jerusalem with a siege that lasted three and a half years. And the end results of the Jewish war with Rome were horrifying violence, the likes of which perhaps has never been seen in the world in a single battle before or since. Nevertheless, in their wicked schemes to kill Jesus, they carried out what God had predestined to take place in order to bring about the redemption and the salvation of Christ's beloved sheep, his church. And there's a lot in this passage, and I had to stop typing, so I wasn't going to keep you here for three hours. But let's look at verse 26. Verse 26, when they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. Okay, stop there. The legions of Rome, those Roman soldiers, they had the right, they had the right uh, in Roman law to just requisition help anytime they ever needed it for things like this. And Jesus even mentions this in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember he says in Matthew 5, 41, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. In other words, if one of those Roman guys comes over and grabs you, we need your help to do this. Don't do the minimum. Go, go two miles with the guy. Help them all you can. And this man, Simon from Cyrene, He became a Christian. We know that he did. He also had two sons, and they were mentioned in Mark's gospel. Mark 15, 21 says, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And so when Mark wrote his gospel, he wrote that that gospel and gave it to a church that they would have known this guy's two kids, Alexander and Rufus. And Paul, when he wrote the book of Romans at the end, says, Greet Rufus outstanding in the Lord, his mother and mine. Rufus was the son of this guy that carried Jesus's cross. And Paul's like, hey, tell Rufus I said hi. Can you imagine Rufus? Hey, tell Paul I said hi. He's a celebrity too. And notice the beginning of verse 26 here. It says, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene. Now this is not voluntary service by Simon. If Simon wasn't passing by, oh, poor guy with the cross, I'll go help him. 
I have no doubt he was just an able-bodied looking guy. And the Romans, they probably had done this many times. They scanned through the crowd. That guy looks burly and strong. Somebody go get him. So Simon was seized by the people leading Jesus to be crucified. And he was made to carry Jesus' cross. And he carried the cross behind Jesus, it says there. Now, it was likely the last thing that Simon would have wanted to do that day. Now, scholars don't agree on whether the person that was crucified carried the whole assembled cross or if they just carried the beam itself that his hands would be nailed into. They don't know that. But in either case, it would have been a hard task. This would have been a difficult thing for him to carry. And it was something I guarantee you he had no interest in doing. Like he probably met, met, made eye contact with that guy. He's looking right at me. He's going to make me do it. And he grabs him and makes him do it. I just want to say, how often in our lives have we had no choice but to do something that we really didn't want to do, which you look back on later and thank God you had to do it. This would be a day Simon of Cyrene would never forget. And it would affect his family for generations. Imagine being able to go to church with this guy and to hear the details of his story and to hear him narrate what he saw that day. The hours of darkness and the earthquakes and everything else that happened. What a testimony he would have had to share. Look at verse 27. And following him was a large crowd of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. So here again, we see several things. Either the fickleness of the crowd, again, is on display here, or perhaps there were still a lot of people who understood Jesus and they they did love him and they did love the true message about him. The crowd had just chanted together, crucify him, crucify him. But here there's a large crowd of people and women who are mourning and lamenting him. And Jesus is on his way to be crucified after he was scourged and beaten, savagely beaten on numerous occasions over the past few hours. And he must have been a terrible sight to see. That old prophecy, 700 years before his birth, Isaiah 52, 14 says, Just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Now, typically for us, if we see someone bleeding or badly injured, don't you normally want to run over to that person and show them some degree of compassion? What can I do to help? Is that all this was? Was it genuine concern? It's hard to say for sure. Perhaps it was probably a bit of both. Jesus's response, however, is not, thanks, appreciate your concern, It's not gratitude to them for feeling sorry for him, but rather it's heartfelt concern for them, for their souls. Here you have him on the way to bearing eternal hellfire upon himself at the cross, the punishment for sin, and he's concerned about them, their souls and their well-being. Look at verse 28 through 31. Jesus turning to them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us into the hills, cover us. For they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? In other words, things are green right now. You're not at war with Rome. If you're weeping now, imagine how much you're going to weep when this happens. And here we have Jesus on the edge of suffering the very curse of God against the sins of his people. And his thoughts are focused where? On people around him, on their souls, their well-being. He tells them, don't weep for me, weep for yourself, weep for your children. Here we have Jesus warning people one last time, terrible judgment is coming upon Jerusalem. It's coming because of what you're doing to me and what you did to God's prophets 
And that's why he says to them, daughters of Jerusalem, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. That city is going to be flattened by the hand of God. And he's going to use the armies of Rome to do it before that generation passed away. Now we can bless God's name every moment of every day that he delights in mercy. Are you not thankful that God delights in mercy? And that he's the father of compassion? That he's tender towards his children? And while God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those that hate him, he visits the blessing upon thousands that love him and keeps his commandments. He's so very gracious and patient and kind towards men. His covenant faithfulness, his love, his rich grace, they're marvelous and they're wonderful. But let us never forget that God is also a God of justice. God has real wrath against humanity for its sins. There is destruction upon the vessels of wrath who die unrepentant and defiant to God. There is real wrath and real anger in the heart of God towards the unrepentant wicked. You know how we know that? Because of what Jesus is about to endure here. Because of what's about to happen in the crucifixion. God indeed is a God of love and of justice. Jesus came because of God's great love for his people. And his coming was necessary because that real wrath against his people has got to be satisfied. And the sacrifice of the Lamb of God has to happen to take that away. And for those hardened in their wickedness who die in that state, God's patience expires and justice is unleashed. And I will say this about the generation you and I live in right now today. If there's ever been an age in which we need to remind people of the global flood and an earth's catastrophic past and Noah's ark and the judgment of God that we see manifested and all the fossilized dead things, this is that age. It's one reason why the world around us mocks it so much. It can't stand the idea that God has judgment against sin, but oh, he does. Our deep time, secular, atheistic, irrational, we're all evolved pond scum, monkeys are our great grandparents' age, needs to know that God once killed every man, woman, and child on earth, except eight in the ark, just over 4,000 years ago. That's not that long ago. God is a God of remarkable patience and grace and forgiveness, but that patience has limits. And I say to you, let today be the day of salvation. Repent and believe today if you've been putting that off. Turn your back on lies. Get sick of lies and come to the truth of who you really are. A human being fallen in Adam, made in God's image, created for communion and fellowship with God. And you desperately need redemption and salvation. And that's what we're watching here with Jesus. That's why he's suffering is to bring that to pass. Now look at verse 32. Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. One of the commentators I read this past week said that this act of putting Jesus in the middle with one on his right and one on his left was kind of a way of mocking him as being the king. Because he's got a sign over his head that says, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, and here are his courtiers. One on the right and one on the left. Here's the king and his two loyal subjects, like a real king. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, here he is. So much of what the Romans did to him was mockery. We know from the other gospels, what else did they do to him? They put a scepter in his hands. They bowed down in front of him. Hail, high, mighty majesty, king of the Jews. They put a crown of thorns upon his head, twisted together a crown of thorns. 
and put that on his head. And we know from the chronology in the Gospels that he was struck in the head numerous times with a very long wooden pole after they put that crown of thorns on his head. I want you to think about the symbolism of a crown of thorns. What did the curse of God upon the ground in Genesis 3.18 produce? Thorns. It makes sense that the king who's going to overcome the curse is crowned with them. Another result of sin. Jesus has the, the thorns of the curse stuck in his head and a mock crown since he's supposed to be the king of the Jews. Everything about this is mocking him. I, I would ask, why do we think everyone will crown us with a padded golden crown when Jesus wore one made of thorns? If you're a Christian, you're going to stand out as a Christian in our hostile nation. You're going to be crowned with thorns too at times. Be ready for it. Verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him with, and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Why is that an important image? Golgotha, the skull, place of a skull. Because the skull is a head. Remember the glorious promise that God made to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, when execution was in order, the death penalty should have been visited on Adam and Eve. They should have fallen dead at the foot of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God promises one day the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. He shall bruise your head, he told Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. And that theme comes up again and again throughout the word of God. The heads of God's enemies being crushed by God. Where does David strike Goliath with a stone? Right in the head, right in the forehead, 1 Samuel 17, 49. When Jael kills Sisera in the book of Judges, what does she do? She drives a tent peg through his head into the ground, Judges 4, 21. When the enemy of God, Abimelech, is suddenly killed, how does that happen in the book of Judges? Judges 9, 53. A certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. When Jesus is to be crucified, they would have nailed him to those wooden beams down on the ground with the base of the cross at the edge of a fairly deep hole. And they would have used ropes to pull the cross up off the ground. And then it would have dropped down into that hole on the place of the skull. Isn't that amazing? What's happening here in this moment? The seed of the woman is crushing the head of the serpent and destroying his works by bearing the curse in our place. A crushed heel it's painful, but it's not fatal. A crushed head is a fatal wound. The cost for salvation will be a terrible thing. Unspeakable suffering, anguish and pain in body and soul. That cup of wrath was terrifying to consider. The righteous, unrestrained, divine vengeance against all the sins of God's people. Crucifixion was a shocking, it was a terrible death. It was invented by the Persians a couple hundred years before the time of Christ, and it was picked up and perfected by the Romans. They were very good at it and made sure people suffered long and always died uh, when they were crucified. It was a shocking thing. It's a shocking thing to read about. There have been many studies done, articles written with the gory details of what happens in crucifixion. I'd rather not go into all those details here, but I will give you a brief paragraph written by a really good uh, scholar. <coughs> Quote, it has been well said that the person who was crucified died a thousand deaths. Large nails were driven through his hands and feet. And we know it wasn't through this part of the hand because that wouldn't have held you on a cross. It would have torn through your hand. They nailed them here through the two bones in your wrist and went through the nerve in there. It would have been agonizing, absolutely agonizing 
pain. Among the horrors which one suffered while thus suspended, with the feet resting upon a little tablet not very far away from the ground, were the following. Severe inflammation, the swelling of the wounds in the region of the nails, unbearable pain from torn tendons, fearful discomfort from the strained position of the body, throbbing headache, and burning thirst. In the case of Jesus, the emphasis, however, should not be placed on this physical torture which he endured. You see, there's something far worse going on here that you can't see. It's been said that only the damned in hell know what Jesus suffered when he died on the cross. In a sense, this is true, for they too suffer eternal death. One should add, however, that they have never been in heaven, though. The Son of God, on the other hand, descended from the regions of infinite delight in the closest possible fellowship with his Father to the abysmal depths of hell. On the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So they crucified him there and the two others with him. Look at verse 34. Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Now there's some dispute about the authenticity of that saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, being part of Luke's gospel originally. Jesus may very well have said that, and it would be very consistent with his character and with other things that he said in terms of the grace and the love that he showed even his enemies. And we also remember the first Christian martyr, Stephen. When he was dying, what did he pray? Something very similar. He prayed, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And then we get to the casting of lots to divide Jesus' garments among themselves. Remember Psalm 22? Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. It says in verse 18, They divided my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. Remember why they casted lots for his clothing? Because they were going to tear it up into four pieces. And then one of them said, no, 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 let's not do that. Let's cast lots for it. How could David have known in that kind of detail that was going to happen a thousand years before it happened? And there it was taking place right at the foot of the cross. Because David was a prophet and Psalm 22 was written by divine inspiration. All of God's plans take place exactly as God decreed that they would. And they always take place in accordance with the desires and the nature of the secondary causes like those soldiers. They had no idea they were fulfilling prophecy, but they were. Look at verse 35. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. This is them Doing what? What people that win, evil people, when they win battles, what do they like to do? They like to gloat. They like to gloat over what they've done. And there was a huge audience watching all this. Remember, the scholars, the commentators think that as many as two million extra people showed up in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. There were tens of thousands of people watching this. And the religious leaders of Israel, they accomplished their goal. All that scheming and plotting, bribing Judas, the manipulation of Pilate, it all worked. They pulled it off. There he is, nailed to a cross. He's going to die. All they had to do now was just watch him die. Nailed to a cross in front of all the people who had thought so much of him, the people whose attention had been stolen away from them by Jesus. Soon they thought all will be back to normal again. We'll be back to making money hand over fist there in our temple business. And Rome will leave us alone. And we can go back to partying, seeing and being seen in all the best banquet halls and parading around in our long robes and being called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. 
They're mocking Jesus and saying that his crucifixion clearly is an indication that he's cursed of God. If you're the Christ, save yourself. If God delights in you and you really are his Messiah, why are you nailed to a cross? They had no idea what was really happening here. No idea. Yes, Jesus was being cursed of God, but not for anything he had done, but for what his people had done. For what some of those that crucified him had done. He was not stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted for his own sins, but for ours, for our iniquities, for our transgressions, for our stubborn acts of wickedness. I would ask you, does it not break your heart when people misunderstand you and you know they misunderstand you? You Christians try to do what they do for Christ. They try to do what they do for the sake of righteousness, usually. But when people call your good evil and act like God has abandoned you, doesn't it hurt? Can you imagine how much Job was hurting when Zophar said to Job, God has exacted from you less than you deserve. You're hiding something. The guy, all 10 of his kids died in one day. His wife left him. His health is gone. And here, when he needs friends, Zophar says, you're getting less than you deserve. That hurt. These cutting, hurtful words, they went right into our Lord's soul. He's been abandoned by God. Look at him. He's the Lord's Christ. Come down and save yourself. I just would remind the people that said that and people today, no human being in the history of the world, before and after this, has ever heard these words from God. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God can't look at any of us and say that in ourselves, but he said that about him. They all think he's been abandoned by God. Look at verse 36 through 38 now. Soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him. This is the king of the Jews. So these soldiers They must have been made aware of the charges against Jesus. Pilate, remember, he kept presenting Jesus to the crowd. How did he introduce him? Behold, the king of the Jews. And that that was a jab at those religious leaders. He loved saying that. This is your king. Plus, Pilate had that sign put on top of Jesus' cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It's a terrible scene to, to think about and meditate on. I would ask, who are the true Jews? He he is the king of the Jews, but who are the true Jews today? Paul tells us in Romans 2, 28, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. We believers today, Jew or Gentile, no matter what our ethnicity or skin color, we are the children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. We are the true Jews and that's our king. Here is our king. He's the king of the Jews. And he wore a bloody crown and died an agonizing death so that he would one day sit upon a throne over the whole world, over all the kingdoms of men, far above all principality and power, might and dominion, and exercise his authority and lordship over all the world, over all his enemies, who are slowly but surely even now being made into his footstool. But this path to glory had to make this stop at the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and to bring in an everlasting righteousness by which we could be justified and adopted into God's family. Now we know from looking at all four gospels, Jesus was offered wine twice. He was offered a drink twice. And the first time we know that he refused it. 
because it was laced with a pain-killing drug and he would not drink it. Matthew and Mark record that he refused it. In John 19, 28 and 29, you have Jesus receiving some sour wine before he dies. Now look at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Only Luke of all four gospels records this. The narrative about the man on the cross who repented and believed and was saved at the last minute. What an event this was. We know from the other gospels that both men, both of them start out insulting and reviling Jesus. So the man that was saved wasn't in the mood to be saved right when he was crucified. He was cursing Jesus too. But something happens. Something happens in his heart while he's nailed to the cross. God, the Holy Spirit, breaks through, regenerates his stony heart, and converts him on the spot. And I would ask you, is that not a glorious illustration of God's unconditional electing grace? Here we have two men being crucified with Jesus in between them. How is it that under identical circumstances, one man is saved and the other is lost? Why is the gospel hidden to the eyes of some but revealed to others? Here's the answer. Mercy. Grace. The gospel is revealed from heaven. Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven to the one receiving mercy. The gospel remains hidden. Jesus Christ remains hidden to the one who is receiving perfectly just fairness from the hand of God. And the results of his conversion are astonishing, to say the least. Look at verses 40 and 41. But the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. The converted man rebukes the other one. For the obvious fact that both of them are nailed to a cross, and rightly so. The fact that the converted man, in agony on the cross, recognizing that this is just before God for the life that he had lived, that's what really stands out in the narrative. What a shattering moment for this man. When a person is truly saved by Christ, they come to Jesus because they're convicted by the Holy Spirit of their sin. Jesus said that's one of the works that the Spirit does. In John 16, 8, he says, I will send the Comforter and he will convict the world of sin. He will show them how much they need me. And when the Spirit does this, the convicted person, they pass the same judgment upon themselves that the Word of God passes, guilty and condemned. You know, the great Charles Spurgeon, he recounts his own conversion in many of his books and many of his sermons and been listening to him on Audible lately and He said that he got to the point under the convicting work of the Holy Spirit that he was disgusted at the idea that someone like him could go to heaven. Disgusted by it. And he confessed that it would be evil for him to go to heaven. And it would be wrong for God not to send me to hell. The man on the cross actually sees and confesses his own crucifixion was him suffering justly. He says, we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. He could see that it was just, it was right in the sight of God what was happening to him. 
Now, dear congregation, I, I could see crucifixion victims nailed to a cross being filled in those final moments with righteous indignation that they had ever done anything to deserve, that anyone could ever do anything to deserve that sort of death. But not this man. He sees it. He sees what he is compared to in the cross next to him. The righteous majesty of Jesus is right there. And he sees his sin in bold relief. And he tells that other man, are you crazy? Don't you fear God? Don't you see what's happening here? We're getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. He's saying, I'm nailed to a cross justly, but not this man. I'm getting what I deserve, but not this man. This is what my life of wickedness has earned me before God, but not this man. He sees in Jesus a sinless savior because God supernaturally opened his heart. Look at verse 42 and 43. This is some of the most glorious stuff God has ever spoken to us. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a simple expression of saving faith. Divinely given faith. Jesus, remember me. Notice he doesn't say, Jesus, remember my grace-enabled works. (laughs) Jesus, remember my faithfulness. It's just, Jesus, you're it. You got to do all the saving here. Will you remember me? And some of my fondest memories as a child were going to sleep at night to the sound of my dad playing his acoustic guitar. And he would sing Don Francisco songs. Anyone here remember Don Francisco? Nobody? Wow. Man. You do? You remember Don Francisco? Thank you. Good. He's great, isn't he? I mean, what a great, what a great songwriter. And my dad would sit there and play that acoustic guitar. And I'll send a link out to some stuff from the church. (laughs) They're on YouTube, by the way. I knew all those songs by heart as a kid because of my dad. My father, who was the president of the Baptist Student Union at the University of Cincinnati, when he first got married, and then he went and spent a year in Vietnam and didn't go to church again for the next 10 years. And in fact, confided in his diary that he was an agnostic after what he saw in Vietnam and My mother never gave up on him, never gave up, and just kept praying. And she'd scrub me and my sister down and take us to church. And I'm very thankful for that. My mom didn't give up on him. And one of those songs that Don Francisco used to sing was a song called Too Small a Price. And it's the man upon the cross that dies and gets saved. And I wanted to read to you just a couple of stanzas from that. Here's the man singing on the cross. But the man upon the other cross began to curse and swear. And his voice was filled with venom as he hurled it through the air. All the horror that was in him and had laid his life to waste came out in every syllable he flung in Jesus' face. Jesus only looked at him, but something deep inside of me, in spite of all that watched us there, it couldn't be denied because his righteousness and innocence were shining bright and strong and I just couldn't keep my silence while that cursing still went on. I cried out, Don't you fear the wrath of God even at the end. You'll curse us both into the pit. Is that what you intend? We're only getting what we're due. We've sinned our whole lives long. But don't you talk to him that way. Because he's done nothing wrong. And then with all my courage and a voice not quite my own. I asked him, Lord, remember me when you come into your throne. And he answered me. 
And even then his love was undisguised. He said, before the sun has set today, you'll be with me in paradise. The shouts and curses did not stop even when the sunlight ceased. But somehow in the midst of it, my soul had been released. And though the agony continued, it was still too small a price to be allowed to hear those words and to die beside the Christ. Did anyone ever die with that kind of communion, joy, and fellowship with Jesus? Who just a few moments before was cursing him? The thing about it is all of us can die with that very same assurance. We have all his promises, all of his words. We have all of his love given to us in the word of God, the Bible. Why would something so radical, so incredible happen to one man but not the other? Because God is sovereign. The saved man, he got undeserved, unmerited mercy and divine favor, and the other got exactly what justice required. You see, fairness, fairness would demand both men are left to die in their sins. But we see the fruits of true repentance there. What does the man do? He confesses his own sin. He rebukes the other man for attacking Jesus. He recognizes he's getting what he deserves. He confesses Jesus' purity and innocence, and then he puts his faith in Jesus' ability to save him. And he asks to be remembered. He prays to Jesus. Those are the marks of true conversion. That man died and went to heaven just a few minutes later. Gone are the excuses. Gone is any special pleading. He looks at the wreck that his life had become as he's in agony, dying on a cross in humiliation and pain. And he confesses, this is righteous and this is what my life has earned. Then and only then is he ready to see the saving power of Jesus. You know, everyone in the world is exactly the same. We're no different from him. It's only when we see that we deserve hell, we deserve damnation, then and only then are we ready to see Jesus in all of his saving glory. And you see in Jesus this incredible willingness, an incredible willingness to save anybody, no matter who they are or what they've done, if they just come to him, he'd he'd save them. This utterly hopeless life and hopeless situation for this man on the cross ends in conversion. And that very day, he's with Jesus in paradise. Jesus displays that willingness to save sinners, and that willingness has not changed with the passage of time. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, the scripture says in Hebrews 7, 25. Jesus was unhindered from saving this man, even in his weakest moment, there in agony on the cross himself, because even as he's dying, he's still an almighty savior. And we saw Jesus this morning warning those who wept for him, who were mourning him, that they needed to be more concerned about themselves and their children. And the ancient image of the head of Satan being crushed by the seed of the woman, here it's illustrated in living color. Jesus is dropped into the, to the hole on the top of the place of a skull there on the cross. Our Lord was saving people's souls all the way through his entire earthly ministry up, up to his trial, his condemnation, his scourging, his crucifixion. He saves the man on a cross next to him. Right after he dies, he saves one of the centurions that killed him. In the next passage, truly, this man was the son of God. He's saving people all along the way. Because that's, that's what he came to do, to save sinners from their sins. Every person that he saved had been given to him by the Father from before the foundation of the world. Isn't it amazing and encouraging and wonderful to know the man on the cross was a chosen vessel of mercy by the Father, by name, individually, every detail of his life planned to that very moment. He was a love gift given by the Father to the Son in eternity past. 
And in God's sovereign plan, some of his dear ones, they're born again and saved while they're still in the womb, like John the Baptist. Some are saved in childhood. Some are saved later in life. And some are saved a few minutes before they die. But they all have one precious thing in common. God has set his eternal redeeming love upon them. And next time we're going to look at Jesus' death and then his burial. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, thank you for saving that man on the cross next to Jesus. Thank you for showing us Jesus' concern for the souls of others, even as they wept for him and lamented him. He truly is the ultimate model of living a selfless life, living for the people around him. Thank you for the all-sufficiency of his suffering, that his cross is able to save all who come to God through him. We pray you bless us as we sing your praises here, as we take communion together, and as we fellowship as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.